their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Hey, you're listening to Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. We are a film podcast that discusses stuff. I hate this part. <laughs> <laughs> Just do like a figure out a new drop and like, hey, everybody. Doodly doodly yeah. do. Um, yes, we are a film podcast and um, we are. <laughs> You do this part, Ksenia. Hi. Um, we're a film podcast that talks about movies from a femme-centric perspective. Today, we're going to be talking about Catherine Bigelow, actually requested by one of our listeners, Lily from Tel Aviv. Yes, Lily from Tel Aviv called us mm-hmm. on our phone line, because we have a phone line, and asked if we would talk about Bigelow, and we were like, hey, that's a great idea. And so now we are finally doing it. So... Um, if you have suggestions, you should also tell us what they are, and maybe we will even do an episode about them. Mm-hmm. I would be remiss to not mention the wonderful guest we have on the show today, Aviv Rubenstein. Really? Stein. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier today. I was too. I was thinking that I was like, Eleanor's going to pronounce it wrong. I, I know. Just know it. I've known you for 10 years. I know. But then, but in those 10 years, how many times... Have I actually said your last name? Oh, probably like almost none. Like once, maybe. Yeah. Like I think I heard it at college graduation, and then even then I was not paying attention because we were goofing around the whole time. We were certainly goofing around the whole time. Aviv Rubenstein. Hello. Is in my studio apartment. Hello. That's great. It's really great to be here. (laughs) I I um, have you know listened to every episode of the podcast and emailed a few times and I'm, I'm it's a great honor so Viv, you're a screenwriter i am yes and um have are in the process of completing a couple of films correct um in turn and as a director as a director yeah. right um so we're going to talk about Catherine bigelow today and before we really go into this discussion i think kaseni and i want to say that this is not meant to be the like end all be all bigelow discussion because she's such an important filmmaker and she has so many movies and we have not seen all of them and are in no way trying to kind of encapsulate her entire oeuvre or her place in cinema. We're talking specifically about The Hurt Locker and Point Break as kind of an entryway into some of the themes that she explores and some of her filmmaking style and the types of characters that you find within her stories. So that is our disclaimer. I actually have a question right off the bat is, so you said that she's a very important filmmaker is she? It's a good question. I would say yes. Um, although she's probably not a filmmaker that a lot of people are familiar with who aren't into film. Yeah, I think I agree with you. The, the, the thing about like the auteur filmmaker of which she's like lumped in is they, they all have a very specific look and feel to their films. Think of Stanley Kubrick or Christopher Nolan or Alfred Hitchcock. And I don't think that's necessarily the case with Catherine Bigelow. I think that she sort of jumps around a lot. And mm-hmm. as, as we'll talk about, like, Point Break and The Hurt Locker have a lot of similarities in terms of theme, but not necessarily in the way they look or the feel of the movies. 
Yeah, I, th- I think if you saw the movies without knowing they were both Bigelow, you wouldn't necessarily see that it's her. Exactly. And so I sort of take exception to the to the statement that she is an auteur filmmaker. I think that she's a good filmmaker, and I think that she's one of the only female directors directing action movies, mm-hmm. which is important in and of itself, but I'm not sure if she's in the pantheon that that some of those other filmmakers are. Sure. I mean, I wonder if part of that is because she hasn't directed that big mainstream studio mm-hmm. film that is on a giant billboard in Times Square. You know, she has she doesn't have her Batman franchise. She doesn't have her superhero franchise. I think you're absolutely right. And I want to say that I read that she has never made a studio film. Is it true that all of her films have been independently financed? Even Hurt Locker was financed by um, a company in France or Germany or something like that. And Zero Dark Thirty is a story for another day. But one I find fascinating, which is that of Megan Ellison, the person born the same year that I was born, who is... uh, financed two of the uh, wow. Best Picture nominees last year, her and American Hustle and Zero Dark Thirty, and basically is throwing her money at great projects. And that's cool, Megan Ellison. Anyway. <laughs> well, and Call you, me. And you were saying about, like, um, billboards and, like, yeah. that her films aren't huge. Even, I think it's worth noting that Hurt Locker, which won her the first female director Oscar, um, is the film... Like, in terms of money, it's one of the smallest films to ever receive that kind of recognition. So, domestically, it made about $17 million. And internationally, it was $34 for a total of, I don't know what that is. That's crazy. $50 million, which is nothing. And it was made on a $15 million budget? Right, which is like, so $15 million doesn't necessarily reflect that because that is a production budget. And so they that doesn't take into account all of the promotion that they did, and they did quite a bit. Um, so I don't know how much money anyone from that movie took home. However, it was really culturally significant because first female Best Director Oscar, first Best Picture directed by a female, star-making vehicles for Jeremy Renner, Renner, Anthony Mackie. Um, the, the third guy the is third, Brian. The third guy is not, wasn't a star-making vehicle, yeah. but like <laughs> they're both superheroes now, essentially thanks to the Hurt Locker. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I have to say that I have found Jeremy Renner kind of bland in his post-Hurt Locker roles. Um, although he was kind of fun in Mission Impossible 4. I like the town. He's the t- well, the He was nominated for the town as the well. The town was good. I mean, I... Meh. <laughs> well, you didn't spend the time in Boston that we spent. Okay, fair enough. I think it's the <laughs> accents that mostly drew me in there. Um, and the abs. Yeah, those two, they weren't bad either. Um, I don't know. Renner has not been my favorite, but kind of seeing his performances since and then coming back to the Hurt Locker as the one that made him, it's just, he's astounding in it. Yeah, it's a really, it's way more of a quiet performance than he plays as like uh, as like Hawkeye, let's say. But that makes sense because the, the Hurt Locker is the sort of slice of life of a EOD um, diffuser. Yeah, bombed, yeah, bombed, bombed diffuser, diffuser in Iraq. In Iraq. And so it's like super, it, it really strangely mixes like m- super mundane stuff and super slice of life stuff and 
super exciting, high stakes, like bomb diffusion. Mm -hmm. Well, you were saying that he's kind of quiet in it, which is interesting because he's the flashiest character. And if anything, when I'm watching him in the Hurt Locker, it it was kind of comedic at times because it, it felt like an action hero got, brought into like a real life story mm-hmm. and suddenly we're like yes this would be awesome and mission impossible or something but here he looks insane like he forgot his gloves and he's going to go into the minefield to get them he's an idiot but that, so that's <laughs> i think that that is definitely part of the 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 greatness of his performance in that i'm i just like you eleanor i was not a huge fan of his acting work until I rewatched The Hurt Locker today and I think that there's a, there is a lot of subtlety to that performance so like the glove scene they're shooting off like giant mortar rounds out of their tank and he's like hold on guys I forgot my gloves and I think he's doing that just because he's fucking crazy yeah because, or just to kind of get a rise out of the other two yeah or he wants to appear crazy um which is like a def which is like a definite thing with his character he he fancies himself the superhero mm-hmm. he even refers to to iraqis everyone refers to them as hajas in the movie huh. which is like actual actually what they are referred to um by certain people in the military he refers to them as bad guys huh. and so i think that there's this interesting thing where he does fancy himself a superhero and we can sort of explore why, especially when we get into the other movie. But, like, I think that that's why he goes back at the end. Yeah. Is it possible that it's almost meta, that it's, like, this character imitating an action hero that he's seen in films? I definitely think that, that there is an element to that. especially So, like, the the big sort of, like, emotional scene is where he's talking to his, you know, infant son. Mm-hmm. Which saying, is in, like, the last five minutes yeah, of the movie. spoilers for The Hurt Locker. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that is a thing within <laughs> our podcast. Maybe that's something we should start saying right up at the top of the show, is it's best if you have seen the films that we're discussing, um, only because we will be spoiling them and kind of picking out particular details. Yeah, near the end of the movie, he's, he's finished his his tour of duty in Iraq and he's back at home with his wife. And that's what everyone but him is waiting for, for the whole movie, like this many days. One of the characters always says, Oh, there are 22 days left, 21 after two. And it flashes on the screen. And it flashes on the screen constantly. And, and Jeremy Renner's back and, and we see his sort of mundanity and he's at the grocery store and his wife's like, get some cereal. And there's a moment of him just having to go get cereal. I love the shots in that sequence. Yeah. In the same way that Bigelow shot the perspective of looking at a bomb kind of far away that needs to be diffused was the way that he was suspiciously eyeing the multitudinous options of cereal (laughs) that he could pick out. Um, Specifically, Cinnamon Toast Crunch had a very prominent scene, but it was just like this aisle looked massive and endless and it's like how do i make a choice and this is the moment in which he was unsure whereas the perspective of the bomb he knows exactly what's happening never once is he unsure about anything until he gets to the cereal Uh uh-huh it's the cereal that is his undoing and then he so he has a conversation with his infant son and he just says like when you're young you love everything and then it just sort of dwindles until you love one thing and you know it should be his wife and his kid but it's not it's 
optimistically, if you want to, or patriotically, it's like saving people or doing the right thing or, or whatever, but sort of more realistically or pessimistically, it's the adrenaline that the, the rush that he gets of like nearly being killed. Would you say it's the ultimate rush? <laughs> the premium rush. Sometimes if you want the ultimate rush, you have to pay the ultimate price. Who said that? They call him Bodhisattva. <laughs> of course, we are referring to Point Break. Which Beautiful is- sandy-haired Patrick Swayze. Oh, my God. And sand-filled. He looks like a golden retriever in that movie. <laughs> he totally does. I just want to rub his belly. Um. <laughs> he doesn't have a belly. He has pecs. <laughs> That's true. Um, so we are comparing, or at least... Um, setting side by side the Hurt Locker and Point Break because, you know, whereas, as Ksenia was saying, they would never on first glance look like they were by the same director. But there really are so many similarities between these two films in terms of the human spirit and the drive that drives these characters and ambition that they explore. And that is, you know, an outsider on an obsessive mission with one thing they love, kind of seeking the thrill. Specifically male characters. I, yeah. I think that's important noting. It also is, is how seductive that adrenaline is. And, you know, could be seductive specifically to men. So, like, in Point Break, you, you see Bodie and his gang, and they have already been seduced by the thrill of surfing and the thrill of robbing banks. Spoilers for Point Break. It's 23 years old. (laughs) Um, And in The Hurt Locker, you see Jeremy Renner just starting the movie seduced by the thrill of defusing bombs. And, but in, in Point Break, it's interesting because we get to watch Keanu Reeves' character, Special Agent Johnny Utah. Johnny Utah. Um, sort of get the opportunity to go down that road and, and be faced at a crossroads while um, Jeremy Renner's character, James, William James, um, never has that choice. I had never really sat down and thought about what the point of Point Break is until I was rewatching it with my friend who had never seen it before and who was, like, not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> and w- we'd gotten to the scene where... Are they- you still friends? Yes, of course. <laughs> he'll, he'll come around. Um, we got to the part where they're all jumping out of the plane together, mm-hmm. and he's like, but, but why did he jump out of the plane? Why He looks like he's enjoying himself. Why doesn't he just arrest them? He being Johnny Utah... Mm-hmm. Um, is sort of kidnapped, made to jump out of a plane with Bodhi and his gang. Um, And I was explaining it to him, and it really made sense to me that Utah is at this uh, crossroads between wanting to follow the straight and narrow path that he's been on his whole life to make other people happy, football scholarship for his parents, law school, now he's an FBI agent, to having a taste of this thrill of this ultimate rush um and respecting Bodhi for actually chasing that and seeing a glimpse of what he could be which is exactly why in that super famous scene he can't shoot Bodhi he fires the gun up in the air and screams 
So um, for those who maybe haven't seen Point Break in a minute, uh, we'll just remind you of the plot briefly. It's about a, a group of bank robbers called the Ex-Presidents, called so because they wear really good, actually, rubber masks uh, depicting... And tuxedos. Yeah. And tuxedos. <laughs> depicting four ex-presidents. Um, Johnny Utah is an FBI agent who... Fresh on the force. Mm-hmm. Played by Keanu Reeves. Played by Keanu Reeves. He teams up with Gary Busey, who so knows good. that, or has a has a theory that the bank robbers are surfers. So Keanu Reeves goes undercover as a surfer to try to crack the case. And Bodhi, played by Patrick Swayze, is kind of like the... Guru? Yeah. Yeah. Guru. And the leader of the gang. The Christ figure, essentially, of their group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He he enters that world through a woman, which is like, re- <laughs> come on, a woman is the is the person the only woman in the movie essentially is the person that introduces Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze and you know she's kind of a, a window dressing, she's oh, a prop. Yeah. I mean, she's great in the beginning. Like she seems to have a lot of personality when we first see her, and she teaches him how to surf, and then. And then she's just like the hostage to it's motivate him. Not so. There's there's actually like a middle part before she's a hostage. She's where the lover. She's the lover of Johnny Utah, mm-hmm. and they get to this like big party bonfire thing, and yeah. Bodie's like, "Oh, I, you know, I used to have her, and now you can have her. I'm giving her to you." And she, What's mine is yours. Yeah, she's literally oh, line. his his property mm-hmm. his property that that he's sharing with her, which is interesting. I mean, it, it it raises a lot of red flags in action movies of, like, girls who are window dressings. But, like, Catherine Bigelow directed this movie. Mm-hmm. So she's either purposely saying something by it or purposely not saying something by it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, I, I, I do hope to spend a little bit of time on the much larger topic of Catherine Bigelow as a filmmaker versus as a quote female filmmaker, um, which of course she has kind of come out and said that she doesn't like that label. She is a filmmaker point blank. Wait, what is, Oh, she she is (laughs) point break. Point break. She's point breaks filmmaker. (laughs) I think is what you mean. She's a filmmaker full stop. That's what the quote is. Um, which I definitely respect. And, and it's, she's done her damnedest to not get pigeonholed. Um, which I also think is one of the reasons that her movies are, are kind of so varied in style. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically, Point Break and um, The Hurt Locker have a lot of themes in common, like machismo. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. like to the point of homoeroticism. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's just so much testosterone in both of these movies. To the point that Lori Petty, who plays the woman in Point Even Break. she's really boyish. Like Her name's Tyler. Her name is Tyler, but at one point she says, oh, there's too much testosterone here. I'm mm-hmm. gonna go serve. But she has really short hair. I don't think we ever really see her in a dress. Even just the way she holds herself and talks is very, like, boyish. Yeah, but she is undeniably sexy. Of course. Fair. In a surfer kind of way. That's true. Um, yeah. Uh, but like there are definitely scenes there are scenes of sort of boys being boys let's say in both movies um and in point break it's them playing football on the beach mm-hmm. and they're like you know tackling all over each other and rolling all over each other and it's never like these guys are in love but it's not something that like 
the bros these days would do because, you know, they're afraid to touch each Everyone's afraid to touch each other. And similarly in The Hurt Locker, there's like a little bit more of a, a violent version of that where finally Anthony Mackie's character and Jeremy Renner's character have like buried their hatchet and they're just punching each other in the chest until Jeremy Renner like mounts him, put essentially puts his balls in Anthony Mackie's face mm-hmm. and won't stop until Anthony Mackie like pulls a knife on him. And then they're like still cool. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they're just drunk and having a, a, a roughhousing session. Is that the male equivalent of two female friends like crying and telling each other how great they are? I, I think, <laughs> I, well, I don't know about that because I've never been a party to that. But uh, um, I think in Catherine Bigelow's world, that might be her version of like male bonding. Hmm. One thing that I did want to hear your thoughts on um, were, you know, Ksenia and I really do like to talk about female friendship in movies and how that Mm -hmm. is portrayed. Are these very much in the same way male friendship movies Um, or male antagonist movies? So I think that Bigelow does a really good job in these two movies specifically of building relationships that start with animosity and then move into mutual respect. So Anthony Mackie and Jeremy Renner in the beginning hate each other so much so that Anthony Mackie entertains the idea of killing him in mm-hmm. that gloves moment that we were referring to. Anthony Mackie's like, those things misfire all the time. Like we could just write a, kill him and write a report. Yeah. Um, and then the first time that Jeremy Renner shows some loyalty to his friend or his would be friend, then they're like best bros. Yeah. Um, loyalty is a big thing in m- most of Catherine Bigelow's movies. So in K-19, The Widowmaker, which was the film she made before The Hurt Locker, it was her last film before The Hurt Locker, it's all about loyalty. Hmm. Loyalty to the ship versus loyalty to the Soviet Union um, and which trumps which. And, and I think that that's something that she really likes to explore in, in Strange Days, too. It's friendship loyalty. is a story about friendship loyalty. Hmm. But do you find that, like, realistic or, like, true to your own experience as a man? As When I'm diffusing bombs. <laughs> no, I think that she's ex- kind of exploring many sides to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that she's made a specific statement about it. But I think that she did her damnedest in The Hurt Locker to make every scene, everything seem real and authentic. Mm-hmm. All the artifices stripped away as best as possible. They shot, like... 100 hours of documentary footage. I think it was 200. That's I think stupid amount of footage. It is. Yeah. And The Hurt Locker does take all these pains to come across as a realistic movie, as a movie that mm-hmm. purports to exist in the real world. Correct. Um, which, of course, it got some criticism for, but was mostly lauded for. Point Break very much exists in movie world. In Absolutely. In silly action movie world. I have a theory about this. Yeah, go. Uh, I'm going to blame 9-11. Oh. I swear. Um, so this is this is my. <laughs> oh, go on. Oh, on. How about that? Um, so <laughs> this, this is so. Catherine Bigelow has made eight feature films or nine, eight or nine feature films. One more than James Cameron. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms who of who she was previously married to, only for three years. Two 80, or three years. Eighty-nine to ninety-one. Yeah, not many years. Um, so she made um, a bunch of movies that were full of movie stuff. The most of which was was Strange Days, which was scripted and produced by Cameron after they were divorced. He also served as executive producer on Point Break. 
or producer on Point Break? Something like that. Yeah. But but you can really see the cam the Cameron influence in Strange Days, and I know that she sort of takes exception to that, but it really is kind of an outlier in that it's science fiction, it takes place in the near future, and they, th- this is the camera influence in my head, is they invented a new camera technique that they spent a year working on to shoot the movie. And that's like his calling card, is like, I want to do something that doesn't exist yet, so let's make it exist. Avatar. Avatar, Titanic, like everything. He only did Titanic, because he wanted to go to the bottom of the ocean. And one can possibly draw the comparison to between Bigelow's interest in uh, risk-taking, adventurous men in her films to her choice of partner. Very true. And that's sort of a chicken or egg thing. Yeah. Like, I'm not prepared to make a statement like, Jeremy Renner is playing a version of James Cameron. <laughs> no, of course not. But it is interesting that a lot of her films do follow these men who live on the edge. And mm-hmm. you have James Cameron being one of maybe three solo divers to go to the bottom of the ocean. Right. So her films get sort of wackier and prettier um, and more artificial. That's not like a dig at them, but like sort of... Movie like, mm-hmm. more kind movie like, pulpy, pulpy, um, until K nineteen. Sorry, until K nineteen, The Widowmaker, which is like a almost a prestige piece. It's got your Liam Neeson, it's got your Harrison Ford, it's got a Sarsgaard, <laughs> and um, um, yeah, but it's a prestige <laughs> picture. It takes place on a submarine, and it's a period piece. But she still had some of that grounding where they, like, built a set that was an exact replica of the thing. Um, and then that movie was, like, in production when 9-11 happened. And the two movie, and she didn't make a movie until 2008. So the, and the two movies that she made since then, A, have all the artifice stripped away from them. They're, the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Correct. And they're, they're handheld cameras. They're, like... Super loose, kind of flowy dialogue. There were a couple shots in Hurt Locker that were like zoomed in on the, uh, like the, the shell falling, like that just didn't fit. But yeah, the overall they're very falling, realistic. Yeah. And and so I think that part of it is the technology and styles are pushing things that way. And like the docu style is still a style; it's still a choice. Um, but I think that. It's interesting that the the film that she made was or was making when the events of September 11th happened was like a film glorifying sort of the heroicism of the Soviet Union, and then the two films after are all about America, 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 and so I America think specifically dealing with Middle East, America dealing with Middle East, dealing with the, the dir- directly with the things that happened on September 11th. So I think mm-hmm. that that may have affected the way she makes films, both in content and in style, because mm-hmm. I think that she wants to tell something real. And that's total speculation, but that's sort of what I... There's a definite shift between 2002 and 2008. At the same time, Point Break, to me, feels a lot more patriotic in a lot of ways than Zero Dark Thirty or Hurt Locker. It's practically like an American flag waving. It's surfing and these people like being excited about life, even like the presidential masks. Like, Mm -hmm. why do they have to wear those? So I don't necessarily think that 
the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty are patriotic. They're just all about America. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot uh, saying, you know. If anything, I think they're pretty neutral. And she tries not to make too much of a political statement as much yeah. as people try to impose one on them. So a lot of people, like, gave Zero Dark Thirty some flack for, like, supposedly being pro-torture. When I, I think you're right. I think that they just don't take a stance. She's like, this is what happened. Yeah. Which which is quite interesting to me. But I totally agree with you that Point Break is like America in the 90s in a movie. Or like an American dream in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I think it's actually like super a super 90s movie. Like the soundtrack, the clothing, the surfing. Um, there's like a great chase scene through the backyards of like the barrio in LA. Which is very like... Ferris Bueller flip side. Yeah, but like where a dog is thrown. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm the, sorry. Dog the dog is drop kicked. <laughs> yeah, it is oh, not. Oh, sorry. God. Yeah, the, I, I forgot completely about that part. That's my favorite thing in the world. So, so uh, Keanu Reeves is chasing Patrick Swayze through the backyards of the barrio in LA, and like this is right before the Patrick Swayze bang, bang, still bang. has the Nixon mask on. Uh huh. So he turns a corner. And he's in a tux. And he's in a tux. He turns a corner. We lose him for a second, and then Keanu Reeves turns the same corner, and just a pit bull comes flying. Launched by Bodie. Yeah, it's not a small dog. He throws a a big dog at, at Keanu face. Reeves. And so, like, there's nothing more artificial than that. Mm-hmm. I'm I so mean, serious. even, like, football and, like, lawns being mowed, like, that's just, like, that's so much Americana to me. Mm-hmm. And And what I find really interesting about Zero Dark Thirty and Hurt Locker is just like how mysterious she's become. Like people try to interview her about what her message is and she just kind of stonewalls and refuses to say much. Do you think that's because she doesn't want to be pigeonholed as like a female director? She, I mean, she definitely does not want to be But do you think that that's a reaction to that? Like she just is avoiding the question? I think male directors would be more likely to make a statement because they fear uh, they fear less. Like, they will still get jobs, whether they're conservative or liberal, whereas sure. she might get pigeonholed even further. That's very true. A professor of mine in, in grad school, um, Kim Costello, who's awesome, um, would always refer to herself when she was in writer's rooms as the only skirt in the room. And she had to do a lot of not stepping on toes to get those jobs. So I think that that's a a really valid point. But I think at this point, she's so, she's like, she's a brand. Whether or not she's an auteur, she's definitely a brand. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I guess they're... What if she stops making action movies? I know she likes doing them, but like, what if she does something else? I don't know that she likes doing them. Hmm. So like, she does them, but it's really easy to be that person. Um, for example, like the guy who wrote the movie Buried, where Ryan Reynolds is buried alive in a I coffin. I saw that one. I saw that too. He got, like, every phone call that he got for a year was just like, all right, let's put someone in a small space. <laughs> and so because, That's you know. That's so sad. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that every call Catherine Bigelow's getting is, let's do something soldiery, America-y. Like, let's make it work. And I don't, she could be driving that, but she also could not be. I mean, I'm sure that's true, but it also seems like for these two 
more recent movies, she has really been calling the shots. I mean, they're both made with the same screenwriter, Mark Boll, who is a, a freelance journalist who, you know, embedded with the military in Iraq, who embedded with the CIA operatives. Um, so it, those actually seem like pretty deliberate choices. I think that yeah, would be she, telling what she does next. And she co-wrote the first four of her films or something crazy. Like she, mm. she has had a lot of control over her career. I mean, even if she doesn't continue to make movies that are specifically in the action genre, it seems like she's always been interested in violence yeah. as something to be deconstructed. I mean, her mm-hmm. first movie, her first film, her first short, yeah, uh, um, for which com- I which I haven't seen, but it is it's about violence. It's two men beating the shit yeah, out of each other for twenty minutes, right? And they actually beat each other. Like she actually asked the actors, one of whom is um what's his name? The great Gary Busey. Gary Busey. Um she actually asked them to like punch each other until they were bloody. Yeah, a <laughs> lot of her movies deal with what it means to be a man. Um so her first feature film was called The The Loveless and Willem Dafoe just plays a biker dude. And it's all about, like, being a cool biker dude. And the the chicks that he's picking up just like him because he's a cool biker dude. <laughs> um, and so there's, like, a lot of that kind of stuff in every one of her movies. And what it means to be a man is different in every one of her movies. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, maybe that she's exposing the the how artificial that is. Or maybe she's actually trying to get to the bottom of it. What what I forgot to mention about the setup, that first short that she did in Colombia was while the men are punching each other, I guess there's like a voiceover that's <laughs> sort of like a philosophical discussion of violence. That is so film school. Yeah. Oh my God. Yep. Um, okay. Can we talk about Point Break a little more? Sure. The thing is, um, I only saw this movie for the first time yesterday. Before this, two months ago, I saw Point Break live without having seen the movie. Which is a live show that happens in New York every couple of months. I think it started on the West Coast, yeah, it's but recently it's um, it's come to New York. And the premise is basically um, uh, Keanu Reeves' character is played by someone from the audience, basically under the assumption that anyone could do a better job. <laughs> they basically just have cue cards in front of them with the lines and I think a lot of the time they show more emotion than he did in the movie. I am an FBI agent. <laughs> Buddy, this is your fucking wake-up call, man. I am an FBI agent. Well, like, the line that uh, the audience members had to audition with in order to be picked for the role in the live rendition was... Um, so are we going to jump or are we going to jerk off? <laughs> and it's like, I watched the movie and he's just like, you're going to jump or jerk off. There's a guy, when he first comes into uh, the office, you know, he's starting a new job as a cop and, um, you know, his boss is yelling at him, you're uh, young. Dumb and full of cum. And Keanu Reeves is just like, I like donuts. <laughs> like, oh, why'd you become a cop? I like donuts. He's such a moron. I really could just sit here and listen to you guys impersonate Keanu Reeves for like so, another hour. So I, th- I'm, I hope that's not accidental because I hope we're not reading too far into this. But th- I mean, there's a lot going on in that movie because it's like two kind of movies back to back. There's that like crime movie, and then it turns into something totally different where like 
spoilers, Patrick Swayze just like gets away uh-huh. at the end. And then they find he dies. him. Well, no, then, oh, they, then, okay. then there's like right. a break and they find him like months later. And he's just like, I'm just going to go out and ride the big, <laughs> the big great beyond wave. <laughs> the 50 year storm. Yeah. So, so they, I mean, okay. So this is something that I find really interesting about Catherine Bigelow as a director is in her like more schmaltzy movies, mm-hmm. the really heavy handed symbolism goes um, goes down easier. So, like, Patrick Swayze's got some amazing lines where he's getting away from So Keanu does Reeves. Gary Busey. I think oh, yeah. Gary Busey has, like, some of the best dialogue. But Patrick Swayze, when, when he's getting away from, from Utah, he's like, you want me so bad, it's like acid in your mouth. Like, who says that? And and I think that that has, that is the one thing that does not, that has sort of soured as she's gone more realistic. So the, the, um, the Hurt Locker opens with a quote from, I forget who, um, saying like, something, 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 war is a drug. And then the something, something, something fades out and war is a drug holds on the screen for another yeah. like five seconds. So you, we it's get like, it. Just make sure. You remember those? Going yeah, on and so uh, so I think that th- those are the things that don't translate well to her more modern work. Mm. But like the '80s and '90s stuff, when she's like smacking you over the head with symbolism, or e- like even Strange Days, which is all, like Matrix before the Matrix and living in people's memories and that kind of, and Rodney King stuff. Like Angela Bassett is nearly beat to death by a bunch of white cops led by Vincent D'Onofrio and William Fickner, who are the two whitest people on the planet. And it like looks just like Rodney King. And you sort of swallow it because it's it's fantasy. It's sci-fi. I mean, and nothing is schmaltier than the destruction of Bill Paxton in Near Dark. Oh. Bigelow's vampire movie that I love. Yeah. So Near Dark is another really strange movie where it's like so you think weird. it ends and then it just has another half an hour to it. Yeah, and it relishes in the destruction of this vampire family. Near Dark also starts out like almost feminist and then and then like totally derails itself. So Near Dark starts with this teenage kid who who finds this girl eat like seductively eating an ice cream cone. Yeah. He, it actually is a lot like the uh, first scene of Buffy the Vampire Slayer sure. where the, you have the girl, you have the guy sort of trying to seduce her and then it turns out on its head because the girl is the monster, not the guy. Right. And so she bites him, turns him into a vampire. And he's like, what? He's like pre, I don't know what don't this guy's name is. I wish he was Keanu Reeves. Yeah, story. I wish he were Keanu Reeves. <laughs> it would have been and, so much better. And, um, and, but then she's like in love with him immediately. And she once again becomes like window dressing, a window dressing woman. And there is a lot about loyalty in that movie too. Family. And what it means to be family. a man. Um, but bringing it back to Point Break. Yes. Which is amazing. The dialogue, yes, is goofy. Uh, why has this movie become such a cult movie? So the movie didn't break a ton of box office records. It made like the equivalent of $145 million today worldwide. So it was like a hit that's, that's in today money. That was, it was a hit, but it wasn't like a smash hit. And I think that that's sort of her calling card too, is movies that are more culturally significant than they Mm -hmm. are popular. So the thing, the, the staying power of, Point Break, I think, is the, the the 90s of it all, the president masks, the surfing. It's definitely she bottled a moment in time. Um, but also how quickly that movie aged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the next year it was already ridiculous. At the end of the movie, oh. when he goes into the giant wave, uh huh, and and Utah basically lets him go out into the giant wave because he knows he's gonna kill himself. Essentially, <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. It's great, Viacon Dios. Yeah, Bruh. so. I just wonder if the movie would have lasted longer if they had had a more charismatic person in the Utah shoes. I don't think so. Because he is flat, but like there's so many things going on Mm -hmm. in that movie. It's very flashy and colorful and loud. Yeah. And so like it was made the year before Reservoir Dogs, which is another crime movie. But coming, it comes at it from a, an entirely different angle. And Reservoir Dogs is as valid today as it was the day it came out. Right. And that, that's like, let's, you know, Tarantino's bread and butter, which is like, let's give these criminals personalities and, mm-hmm. and go and peek in on the kind of quirky cultural conversations they have. But, but in Point Break, they're, they are just as personable. They, they have the, not similar personalities, but they have just as much personality, but it's not, there's something that just ages immediately about it. They're not as intellectual as Tarantino's villains. That could, that that's very possible. They're not breaking down Madonna songs and <laughs> they're the, saying bra all the time. I wonder, <laughs> right. I wonder if Tarantino's, and this is turning into some way different than I thought, but I wonder if Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs if he if he sort of like leaned into like I know that this is going to be a product of this time like they're going we're going to talk about Madonna we're going to play this music mm-hmm. and Point Break was made thinking like this is going to be awesome forever <laughs> and it, and like it, each thing had the opposite effect mm-hmm. yeah I'm just thinking about your use of the phrase lean in in that instance <laughs> swim down <laughs> um, yeah I mean Point Break it it could have been sillier. Or it was too, or it wasn't serious enough. It kind of mm-hmm. toes the line where it's not total, it's not schlock, but it's not like it's almost, it's almost schlock. <laughs> but it's not quite. And, right. But it's not self serious enough to mm-hmm. be. I don't know. Maybe that leads me to another question, which is how seriously does Bigelow take herself in her films? I think very seriously. So. You could say more seriously than she used to, but I think that most, if not all of her films, are super serious, mm-hmm. except for maybe Point Break and maybe Strange Days. But, um, you know, K-19, The Widowmaker, is all about loyalty and it's a prestige picture. Um, the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty obviously are super dour portraits of, like, the military. But Blue Steel is a you know, murder mystery thriller, borderline erotic thriller with Jamie Lee Curtis. And that movie takes itself super seriously. And Ron Silver, like, chews the scenery, but in a really great way in that movie. I cannot recommend it high, higher than I already do. It's awesome. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if it's partially um, Keanu Reeves' performance, but, like, he's sort of, like, the flip side of the Hurt Locker uh, Jeremy Renner playing an action character in a realistic world, like Keanu Reeves's character, basically is a more normal, balanced, calmer person in this like high voltage, crazy cartoon. True, and and no one is more cartoony than Gary Busey, who's like eating eating two uh, sandwiches, two sandwiches by Don't the forget. mouthful, two sandwiches. 
get two two get two, me two two meatball subs from Angela's. I mean, Gary Busey and Patrick Swayze are sort of equally ridiculous. Yeah, but he also is kind of the superhero. Mm-hmm. He's the football. Yeah, you're saying he's the football star. He's the FBI agent. He can get any girl with like a wink and a smile. I just wish he like did more with his face. <laughs> like, there's one point where uh, Petty, who apparently actually has played the Keanu Reeves character <gasps> in Point Break Live, that's oh, awesome. um, that's amazing. But in the movie, <laughs> Tyler comes up um, uh, to Keanu Reeves. I'm just gonna keep interchanging all the character and actor, actor names. names. Oh, okay. And she's like, "I can see it in your eyes. You have that look." Uh, that Bodhi had, you have that, like, you want that rush. And it's like, what is she seeing? Because totally blank. That's a really interesting (laughs) thing to bring up because that, almost that exact moment is in The Hurt Locker where um, the third guy... Except it's two men talking instead of a woman trying to stop a man from doing the dangerous thing. Because there's literally one speaking role for a woman in that movie and she has like two lines. Mm -hmm. Which is better than in K-19 where there is like no... There's one woman and she doesn't have any lines. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, uh, the third member of their crew who's like the most nuanced character of all of them because he's got, you know, he's suffering from severe depression gets um, his leg broken due to Jeremy Renner's character's recklessness um, and is being carted away two days before their last day of you know duty. And um, he's the one that's always counting down. And he says, you know, doctor says I'll, I'll walk again in six months if I'm lucky. And Jeremy Renner has the exact wrong reaction. He's like, six months ain't bad. Which is like, you had 48 hours and I would be walking home. Um, and he, so he essentially says, like, you put me in danger because you're an, ad- an adrenaline junkie and it's unsafe. Mm-hmm. And I think that, coupled with possibly a kid that he developed a relationship with dying, really, ex- like, th- th- once again, we're going back to Jeremy Renner's performance or his characters. It's really interesting because he is super reckless in the beginning, mm-hmm. then sort of learns his lesson in three quarters of the way in and realizes that he's sort of been a, f- a bastard and putting people in danger. And then he goes home and just realizes backwards. He realizes that there's nothing else that he can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a super dour look at at like what life is when you're addicted to that or it is the more realistic incarnation of the point break story which if it followed you follow Bodhi Bodhi is constantly looking for the ultimate adrenaline rush and it ends with him willingly killing himself for the Ultimate. I think that rush. they end the exact same way. Right, exactly. If there was a scene of Jeremy Renner trying to defuse a bomb, and you know the eight, the nine hundredth or whatever bomb blows up, in a way that would have been exactly the same as yeah, the way that Point Break ends. He has a smile on his face when he's blowing up. Yeah, yeah exactly. To them, they like they can't imagine dying at home or in prison or any other way like they but, it has to be in a big way but that's a truth like like there are soldiers who come home and they can't deal with the little things because they're so unimportant that it's like why the fuck am i even worrying about what cereal to get mm-hmm. it's sort of a 
a bummer. But I also, as I was watching Point Break, I saw Jeremy Renner and Anthony Mackie going home and becoming the ex-presidents because they have <laughs> nothing else to do, so they want to thrill-seek at home. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's an interesting perspective. I like that. It's kind of like a, you know, narrative prequel in a mm-hmm. way. <laughs> but, and, and I think that that's fun to do, but I think that with Catherine Bigelow's work, she's just exploring many sides of the same coin. And it's not that I think that those characters go home and become the ex-presidents, but those are the guys. Those are the guys that she's talking about. Yeah. Um, at one point, uh, the ex-president, um, or at least Bodhi explicitly says, like, it's not for the money. Right. Like, they, yeah, they could use the money so they could surf longer and they don't have to have jobs. But it's like, it doesn't really matter how much money it is. They just want to do it for the thrill. Just like for Jeremy Renner, it's not actually about making the world a safer place. Absolutely. It's about... He collects, he has a shoebox that he keeps under his bed. This is one of the most important scenes. He has a shoebox that he keeps in, under his bed of detonators that he has diffused. Souvenirs. Souvenirs of things that almost killed him. And it's like souvenirs of ex-girlfriend conquests or, you know, baseball trophies or something like that. It's something he's really proud of in a selfish way as opposed to a, and I'm making the world a better place way. He's, Absolutely. He's kind of an asshole in the movie. I'm not going to lie. So what do we want next from Bigelow? Where do we see her going from here? I think that she's super versatile. While still dealing with many of the same themes, she deals with them in so many different ways that it's like super interesting. And so I would like to see her not do an America the Beautiful movie next. I'd like to see her do something totally nuts. I'm kind of curious to see her do a big budget action movie that is... You know, has a huge billboard in Times Square or something else. <laughs> I I want to see more about how she sees women. I mean, I know that she's pushed away the female director moniker and that femininity might not be as interesting a theme to her or as close to her heart. But um, I want to see more of that. And like, I, I think she could bring forward some really good and interesting female actresses. I think Bigelow's own ideas of gender are are constantly being changed and being thrown out the window. Um, For example, I read an interview with her where she was surprised. She says, I was surprised to find out that at the core of the um, of the hunt bin for Bin Laden. Laden, there were women, but then I was surprised that I was surprised. So I think yeah. she is constantly having her, yeah. So I think that's constantly changing for her. And th- there are a couple movies. I mean, this is a really good opportunity to talk about Blue Steel, which is a female-fronted cop movie. And what's interesting is it is sort of hinted at, but never explicitly said women can't be cop like the male characters are never like you're a woman so you can't be a cop which is something that a lesser movie would like harp on constantly and i think that even in 1989 she was just above that she was over it and she wanted to tell a good cop movie that just so happened to be woman centered that said Jamie Lee Curtis plays like a sex symbol and a tough cop at the same time, which is another rarity in movies like that. So I I think I cannot recommend Blue Steel highly enough. And there's also The Weight of Water, which is an interesting sort of 
quasi true story, quasi fiction film about a woman investigating a crime that actually happened where the, the real murderer was let go because the jury assumed that a woman could not commit a murder or wouldn't commit a murder. Did you find that that is Bigelow commenting on gender or specifically just presenting? Did it have the same kind of neutral take on it that we find in Zero Dark Thirty in the Hurt Locker? It was super, super neutral. And in fact, I only discovered that the real murderer was let go because the jury thought that a woman wouldn't or couldn't commit a murder like via Wikipedia. But because I looked up whether this crime actually existed. So she never even says that. She just tells like a pretty interesting story, mystery. And the one of the supposed victims is the killer. Spoilers. That movie, The Weight of Water, above most others, is the female empowerment movie that a lot of people are ex- like expecting from the female action director. Um, and I think that she did it, and it made zero dollars. <laughs> and then she's like, she's over it, whatever. And, yeah. and I'm really interested to see what she does next. I think we all are. I mean, I, I have to say, I definitely do respect Bigelow's aversion to being lumped in to this female filmmaker category. It's the same way that I feel about with bands. I'm excited for the day where we no longer need to say it's an all girl band or a female fronted it's band. Like, they're pretty good or she's a for f- girls. Yeah, or girl she's band. a female guitarist. Like she's a guitarist. Bigelow's a filmmaker. Ugh, bands with girls in them. Who needs them? <laughs> <laughs> Says the man with a band. Used to, yeah, used to used, have a band have with a, a girl band. in it. Yeah. Obviously, the imbalance, the gender imbalance in the film industry plays into that. And this is a discussion we will continue to have, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Aviv, thank you so much for being on Bonnie and Maude. Thank you. I will come back any day of the week. Any day of the week? Any day of this even, week. Even the Shabbos? I'm, even the Shabbos. <laughs> um, well, now is the moment that I hope you will tell people where to find your work. Yeah, you can find me um, on Twitter at Rambo Calrissian, and you can listen to my music at soundcloud.com slash the underscore anchorite. That's A-N-C-H-O-R-I-T-E. And I'm finishing up a movie of the same name um, that I will talk about probably ad nauseum on Twitter. Cool. We'll post links to all of these. Great. We absolutely will. Please leave us a review on iTunes if you dig what we have going on here. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr. Bonnie and Maud is the uh, handle for all of those things. You can direct all hate mail at me. At Rambo Calrissian. Yeah, at Rambo Calrissian. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Anything you don't like about the show, at Rambo Calrissian. He will um, he'll screen everything for us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. This has been Ksenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Yay! And, and Aviv Rubenstein. Yeah, uh, Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I said your name wrong. In the you top. motherfucker. <laughs> um, As I was leaving my mouth, I was like, nope, that's wrong. Utah, give me two. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs>